1: good afternoon according to the time zone i'm in good evening good morning to those of you joining from different time zones lovely to see you all again and happy hanukkah happy uh, we we took a week off uh, last week thank you for your understanding as i needed to uh, postpone cancel actually last week's class Uh, And I hope that I was going to say, I hope you didn't miss Heschel too much, but actually I hope you did. And maybe that's why you're back after, after a week's hiatus, because you missed him that much. Um, So I'm hoping that the, the, you know, the two week gap between last session and this session didn't, didn't uh, leave you all uh, completely, you know, all the, all the knowledge that we had accrued over four or five weeks of learning Heschel. I hope it didn't, float away too quickly. Um, I will do you know what I've done similarly in previous classes and begin with like a little bit of a catch-up um, but before we launch into our learning as always uh, invite you to recite the bracha over learning the blessing uh, which concludes with la'asok b'divrei Torah expressing our gratitude that uh, we get to immerse ourselves in the words of Torah this afternoon. Baruch Ata Adonai Eloheinu Melecha Ulam Asher Kijanov Mitswatav Vitsivanu La Asuk Vidivre Torah. Amen. Amen. Yeah, I also invite folks to put into the chat uh the names of loved ones, uh living or deceased that you'd like to dedicate your learning to today. Uh this is a way to um honor our love for them. It's a way to bring them into this space and to feel uh, in the realm of spirit that we are learning alongside them. Okay. All right. May May their names, may their memories be a blessing. So friends, two weeks ago, we shifted to one of the biggest questions out there, which is what exactly does Heschel mean when he says God? Right. It took us four weeks to build the scaffolding necessary to approach that question, to begin to approach that question. Um, but two weeks ago was when we first started to try to understand, right? who is the God that Heschel is referring to and who Heschel believes is ultimately um, worthy of our devotion and worthy of our partnership. And what we encountered two weeks ago um, was, in Heschel's words, a God of divine concern. That was what we focused on, if you recall, two weeks ago. right? God, according to Heschel, is fully concerned, we might even say exclusively concerned, with the needs of of others. And because God is eternal, we can therefore say that God is eternally and exclusively concerned with the needs of others. Heschel uses these two terms reflexive and transitive concern to identify the different kinds of concerns that human beings hold reflexive concern being concern for self concern for one's own needs and he admits that it's it's impossible to be human and not to have any reflexive concern that's part of being a finite biological creature we need to we need to be worried about where our next meal will come from in order to survive but the second kind of concern transitive concern is concern for others and heschel desperately wants us humans to Um, Embrace and adopt as much transitive concern as possible. That's what differentiates a beast from a man in Heschel's language. And God is the ultimate paradigm of transitive concern. God, according to Heschel, is egoless. God has no reflexive concern. God is not worried about where breakfast is going to come from. God is exclusively concerned with the needs of others. And in this sense, God is self-transcendent, right? God transcends the needs of the self. And so what does it mean to be in relationship with a God who is fully concerned with the needs of others? Our task, Heschel believes, is to share in God's concern, right? to view the world, view others with the eyes and egolessness of God. And, of course, to respond to God's concern for others by living a life of care for others. Right, so that was a three-minute summary of the of the reading that we spent, you know, forty-five minutes with last class. Um, but I, 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 we're not. I'm not going to sort of um, drop this topic and take us in an entirely new direction. I want to build on this idea of God in our learning today. Hopefully, you all received the. PDF I sent entitled Divine Pathos. And we're going to take a, 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 a sort of a, 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 a parallel uh, exploration to the issue of God's concern um, with our reading today. And then where I would like to land by the end of today is with the very famous Heschelism and staple of his theology which is that God is in need of man. All right, so the ground I'd like to cover today is to better understand God's pathos, God's concern for everything that God has created, and then to better understand the partnership between God and creation. Okay, any, any questions before we jump into today's reading? What was the definition of self? <laughs> I, I said any easy questions. Didn't I say that? What's the definition of self?
2: Kind of a Jungian concept, right? Because you can look after yourself without being a narcissist. Right. Which makes it a short hop to being transitive, right?
1: I, so I, I think Daniel, I'll do my best. This is this is a big tough question. Um, I think at least vis a vis what we've encountered, uh, in Heschel's differentiation between reflexive and transitive concern. Okay, reflexive concern being concern with the needs of the self. I think he is mostly talking about. Uh, the the needs that relate to our self-perpetuation to our continual existence and so because god is not concerned with any threats to god's own existence god doesn't hold that kind of concern for self wendy
3: I listened to uh, the class last time. I couldn't be there. But um, I, I see also Judith had a similar kind of a, a question. Um, I don't know how, um, how God is so selfless. If you look at so many things in Torah where God insists, and we pray this, we, we say these words, do not forget, I'm the one who took you out of Egypt. Don't forget. And many of the things we talk about, um Aaron's sons being all of a sudden swallowed up by the earth. Why? There are and God's anger and God's um, in a sense, jealousness, you know, do not have any other gods before me. Um, I mean, there are many questions I have about that, you know. Also the, you know, which the ultimate question I always ask. In uh, Bereshit, uh, let's let's. Well, there are many things to it. Let's make a man. Let's make humans in the in the image of us, not me, but us. So, I mean, there are many depths of of looking at it. You know, the the notion that self is made up of many things, just like God is made up There are many levels to God. But I have a hard time saying that God is is. Um, totally um there for humans that god is selfless i that um i think i think god is does have a very strong sense of self and i think that that also is part of what i want to talk we'll be talking about i'm sure later from what the reading you gave that that is a vital part of our relationship with god is that god is a very has a very strong sense of God
1: and okay, okay. so when okay, let me let make, me jump in because you've said I'm a couple going further I'm, you sorry. have a couple of things that we could spend the whole class responding to um so sure. let, let me just respond to, to one of the pieces of what you shared which I think also connects to with what Judith shared um there's a difference between God being exclusively Uh, concerned with others that is not incompatible with God having needs Heschel Heschel has no problem saying that God has needs God's needs are for humans to behave a certain way so yes that's a need that God has um Does God have that need because of some threat to God's own existence? I think probably Heschel would say no, right? But God being in relationship with humans, being the creator and parent of humans, wants humans to behave a certain way. So God's um, commandment that we not worship any other gods isn't about God's insecurity. It's about God wanting us to live a certain way. And when you worship multiple gods, in Heschel's view, right, in the biblical view, you are going astray from the path of righteousness that will lead you to um to uh to a, a life of concern for others. I, I even God's Anger, God's emotional life, right, is not to Heschel a reflection of some character flaw or some insecurity that God has. It's a way that God, in relationship with us, is expressing how God feels about the life that we're living. Right? A parent who is angry at a child for Misbehaving, right? If it is righteous, well-channeled anger, the function of that anger is to teach the child to live differently. It's not about some selfish need that the parent has. the The anger is still in service of the child rectifying their behavior. So, I, I think that that's how Heschel would respond to to some of the. The concerns that Wendy, you and, and Judith uh, expressed here. Leah, is it okay if I if I jump into the reading and then? Okay, all right. Let me share my screen with you all. Mm-mm-mm-mm. Here we go. All right, just give me a thumbs up if you can see the text. You should see divine pathos. Okay, this um, as you know, I have been mostly giving you excerpts from um, from Rothschild's book, which is a compilation of excerpts from Heschel. This is directly from Man Is Not Alone, which is one of the books that Rothschild draws from. But I thought that this was sort of the clearest and most succinct uh, exploration of what Heschel means by divine pathos. All right, let's begin. The God of the philosophers is all indifference, too sublime to possess a heart or to cast a glance at our world. His wisdom consists in being conscious of himself and oblivious to the world. In contrast, the God of the prophets is all concern, too merciful to remain aloof to his creation. He not only rules the world in the majesty of his might, he is personally concerned and even stirred by the conduct and fate of man. And now Heschel quotes Psalms 145, his mercy is upon all his works. All right, take a moment just to digest this. We began to talk about this last class, right? Heschel, in um, articulating his theology, uh, does a fair amount of contrasting this his theology, what he would call the prophetic theology, with other theologies out there, right? Last two weeks ago, we looked at some of his contrast with um, with with Greek philosophy and with with pagan philosophy. So here he's going after. I think his, old, his, his sort of top target, which is the god of the philosophers. Here, he, he this is a bit of a code for Aristotle's god, which is a bit of a code for Rambam's god, Maimonides' god, right? Um, and Heschel, I think, is most bothered by the god of the philosophers because the the foundational premises of the god of the philosophers is that this god is the unmoved mover this god is unchanging because according to greek philosophy to change implies imperfection and non-eternality And eternality and perfection, stasis, are the hallmarks of Maimonidean, Aristotelian, and Greek philosophy. But the consequence of a God who doesn't change is that that God is indifferent, apathetic to what happens down here on earth. Right? That God has no emotions. That God cannot be... Pleased in one moment and dismayed in the next. Angry in one moment and appeased in the next. And Heschel looks at the evidence of the Torah and the prophets and rabbinic thought and says, we've made a big mistake. We've started to believe that the Jewish God is oriented around Greek philosophical axioms but that's not the jewish god that's not the god of the bible that's not the god of the prophets that's not the god of the rabbis the god of the bible the prophet the rabbis is not indifferent at all the god of the prophets is all concern it it cares about us supremely is impacted by what we do here on earth is upset when we go astray he loves us. And so his first Heschel's first move here is to both caution us from the adoption of Greek philosophy into Jewish thinking and then to remind us that the God of the prophets is is deeply concerned with the conduct and fate of humanity. All right, let's read a little bit further and then we'll pause for some discussion and questions. These are the two poles of prophetic thinking. The idea that God is one, holy, different, and apart from all that exists, and the idea of the inexhaustible concern of God for man at times brightened by his mercy, at times darkened by his anger. He is both transcendent beyond human understanding, and full of love, compassion, grief, or anger. Okay, so Heschel here is um, playing with, you know, two terms that show up a lot in across the spectrum in theology, right? Transcendence and imminence. Um, Although he's not using the word imminence here, I think he is trying to maintain sort of two understandings of God that sometimes feel paradoxical, but in fact are fully true and ascribable to God. Namely, God is bigger than anything we can name, right? You think you know God. God is 10 times more unknowable than that which you think you know, right? Is there a spark of divinity in everything on earth? Yes, that spark is, you know, one infinitieth of what God actually is, right? So his first move here is to, to maintain this transcendent notion of God, this ineffable, big, bigger than big, right, notion of God. And simultaneously, wonderfully, remarkably, the God who is bigger than it all, who's apart from all that exists, is also inexhaustibly concerned for us. And his God's concern for us is so alive right, that it produces a range of emotional responses. To our conduct. All right, Bruce. Bruce, I don't know if you're looking for the. You're microphone. muted. Uh,
4: thank you. Okay. So, so I'm having some reaction to uh, Heschel's. Uh, Statement that uh, God is uh, too merciful to remain aloof from his creation, that uh, is inexhaustible concern. Uh, we see that uh, in uh, biblical texts where God intervenes directly in the events of history. Uh, what would Heschel say uh, about what's going on now where it is uh, difficult? Uh, to see or perhaps even believe that God is intervening in history.
1: Okay, Bruce, I'm so glad you asked that question. It, it, it it's a crucial question. Um, so I think you were already beginning to notice the difference between um, concerned, you know, or remaining aloof and intervening right and i I think heschel would press us to understand the difference between those two right god god's care and concern for us is inexhaustible that doesn't mean that god is going to swoop down and intervene in human events now that leaves us with the question, well, what about all those examples in in the Torah, right? That demonstrate that God seemingly used to do that, right? So it's like Heschel wants to say, God's concern for us remains the same, but it seems as if in biblical era, God acted on that concern with divine intervention, right? breaking the, the rules of nature to, to leave God's mark on human history. And now, hmm, is it happening? Is it not happening, right? And and I suspect God, Heschel would say, um, it's happening in more ways than we realize, but yes, we are living through an era of divine concealment. God is veiled. It's it's harder than ever to detect how God is intervening in history. All the while maintaining this is very important for Heschel. Our free will, as you'll see in the second half of this class, right? God is in need of man to attain God's goals. So Heschel does believe that right God god isn't i don't know if he would say isn't i think he would say isn't able but at the very most would say isn't willing right to do the work that god needs humans to do to make the world the place that god wants it to be and so in that sense in that sense right if we i'm going to do something that heschel would not like which is use the omnis right which is really a a greek philosophical uh um uh move right omnipotent omnibenevolent omniscient and so forth I I think Heschel would be much more comfortable saying that God is omnipresent God is always with us but limit God's omnipotence limit God's all-encompassing power to do whatever God wants because in that sense God has given over some of the power to us and Bruce, as you are pointing out, um, we have betrayed that power again and again and again. And the moment that we're living through now. And bear in mind, Heschel lost nearly his entirely family, nearly his entire family in the Shoah. Heschel is no stranger to to the greatest catastrophes. Um, I think he would he would mostly place the finger on human action as opposed to God's. <laughs> action or lack of action. All right, we're going to go Aviva and Alan and then Leah and then I'm going to see what time it is and make a decision, Daniel and Wendy.
5: Thank you. Um, I have an immediate reaction to, to this paragraph and I want to share it because it troubles me. It troubles me when I read about any inference or conversation about gender or form of god as well as the full range of emotions and 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 i don't know how how can we expect god to react with some what we would call emotion about anything that goes on between our relationship um these are handy human words but i i fail to understand how god would react in a manner that we would give those Names of emotions or call emotions out. Deeply troubled.
1: Okay, so Alan, to the to the first to the first point, you said something about gender. Are you are you, um, reacting to Heschel's use of his to describe God or something else?
5: Yeah, yes, that's been common historically to to his God. Yeah, and they have an anthropomorphic male figure of a God that's illustrated or spoken of all through history too. Yeah, yeah.
1: So, yes, I mean, I I share that. I share that feeling, Alan. And um, I guess what I'll say is I, I don't think that Heschel believes that God has a gender. I think that Heschel adopts the language conventions of his time and of his era to describe God. And it rightfully troubles subsequent generations that have worked, I think, very hard to move beyond a male conception of god and to move beyond any gender conception of god so in that sense um it's 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 frustrating that we continually encounter in Heschel's writings but I I think that's the balance of where it comes from now the emotional piece um Heschel writes a lot more about Heschel Heschel is very aware of the risks of anthropomorphism or anthropopathism, which is what he is, the term he's going to use to to sort of name the problematics of assigning pathos to God, right? That's where the anthropopathism comes from. And so this is another one of Heschel's dances. You know, he, he wants to say divine pathos is so utterly different than human pathos, that we can barely even use the same words and mean the same things, right? When a human says angry and when God expresses anger, they don't even mean the same thing, right? They, they, like there are two ships passing in the night, mm-hmm. right? So on the one hand, Heschel wants to claim that um, the terms that we're going to use are indeed human terms that describe, you know, the human range of emotion that we are ascribing to God, but is utterly different than what God is feeling. And yet, it's the best we can do. And just because the language comes up short, he doesn't want to leave us with the conclusion that God is emotionless. He do, He believes very strongly that, um, you know, whether whether the anger and the love and the grief and the compassion are you know, similar to the ways that we feel those emotions. God has an emotional life and some version of those emotions are part of what's stirred within God when God interacts with and 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 witnesses what we humans do. Yeah.
6: Um, on the source sheet, you can see where and when the prophets, which I think was may have been Heschel's Heschel's dissertation. I'm not sure was written 1937, Krakow. Yeah. So let's look at that, and let's look at history. Nobody, nobody who was a Jew should have been in Krakow in 1937. I hope he had. I hope he wasn't there. But many were, and then he writes this book, man, a man, in, uh, God in Search of Man. I think in the mid 1950s. So you got like almost 20 years, and he's still in the game. So for me, he is the most authentic witness to humility and mystery. We are so uncomfortable. Anybody on this call is like has probably had a wonderful education wonderful, affluent society, some part of the world. We don't like not knowing things. We don't like understanding things. And we don't like, I don't know. I can't figure it out. I have no answer. And I think there's a part of that. There's a a mysterious part, uh, an inconceivable, an ineffable part that we cannot grasp with our meager capacities, you know, we're told you cannot see my face and live. You can only see a certain aspect of me, which will sometimes appear contracted. And I think we're living in a period of contraction now.
1: That's right, Leah. And and that's that's the language that Heschel uses, divine contraction, uh, divine veil, divine silence, right? And he he is torn to pieces by that reality. I think Heschel yearns for God to show God's self, right? In the ways that God showed God's self as recorded in the Bible. Um, And as you said, Bruce, to, to, to swoop in, right? But, but Heschel Heschel doesn't interpret the absence of that as proof of the non-existence of God. He doesn't interpret the absence of that as the proof of any any asterisk on God's care for us. And I know that that's going to be a hard compromise for some of us to hold. Um, But I believe it is the compromise that Heschel held. All right, Wendy and Daniel, with your permission, I'm going to take us back into the reading because I, I really also want us to get into the God in need of man piece here, but we've got a little bit more pathos to ex- to explore. All right, so let me share my screen once again. Okay. Uh, third paragraph, God does not judge the deeds of man impassively in a spirit of cool detachment. His judgment is imbued with a feeling of intimate concern. He is the father of all men. Here, Alan, I'm going to do this for you. And the mother of all women, not only a judge. He is a lover engaged to his people, not only a queen. God stands in a passionate relationship to man. His love or anger, his mercy or disappointment is an expression of his profound participation in the history of Israel and all men very interesting language also to the point of right how God intervenes right God's God's emotional response to how we behave in a sense is God inserting God's self into the timeline of history now of course It requires people like the prophets to interpret God's pathos and to share it with the rest of us. Um, But that is how we know how the way that we know God's um, participation in history is by understanding God's. Pathos, by understanding God's emotional response to the events that are unfolding. Prophecy then consists in the proclamation of the divine pathos. This is what I just said, expressed in the language of the prophets as love, mercy, or anger. Behind the various manifestations of God's pathos is one motive, one need, the divine need For human righteousness. So God is. Angry. When we've gone astray. From a path of righteousness. God is merciful. When we've gone astray. But we desire to return. And God's love imbues those other two expressions of emotion. All right, I want to jump from here. The truth is, the rest of this is very good as well. But I'm gonna make a I'm gonna make an executive decision so that we can see what I think is well. That's upside down. Hmm. There we go. So we can see um, how. How this, how this intersects with God's need, which we were just beginning, right? God's need is for the righteousness of humanity. All right, so this is now, once again, um, from Rothschild's uh, uh, compilation between God and man. God is in need of man. Let me make it a little bigger for you all. There is only one way to define Jewish religion. By the way, I think in five classes together, we've seen Heschel start a paragraph that way three or four times with then different words that follow. So, you know, (laughs) that's my asterisk here. There's only one way to define Jewish religion. It is the awareness of God's interest in man. The awareness of a covenant of a responsibility that lies on God as well as on us. Our task is to concur with God's interest, to carry out God's vision of our task. God is in need of man for the attainment of God's ends. And religion, as Jewish tradition understands it, is a way of serving these ends, of which we are in need, even though we may not be aware of them, ends we which we must learn to feel the need of. Anyone want to take a, a stab at saying this in your own words? I know it's, no one wants to be the one to, to, sit, to speak Heschel less poetically than Heschel, but you know now you now you understand my predicament the last five weeks but does anyone want to try to articulate this crucial definition of the Jewish religion according to Heschel go ahead Wendy
3: I think this is the the crux of of everything this is this is the meat, this is the this is the part of it. We were created by God in God's image. We are in partnership with God, creating every moment. That is why we were created. This is something I think um, and that this is the essence of of Heschel's uh terms uh, um of god we are in relationship with god we are in intimate relationship with god and what we do on this earth is also a reflection of that relationship relationships
1: are what the world is about nice good andrea do you want to add to that oh will you turn your microphone on um
7: just a question is it really true that no other religion thinks of god in terms of a kind of partnership um no other religion thinks that god is aware of us and that and of our concerns No, I don't think
1: Heschel's Heschel's saying that, Andrea. I don't don't think Heschel is making an exclusive claim about about Judaism uh, at the expense of other religions. I I think he's arguing that the way to understand Judaism is to understand it as evidence of God's interest in us and the existence of the covenant, which is a covenant distinctly between us and God is a covenant that outlines the expe- God's expectations for how we live our lives. But that does not imply that God doesn't have covenants with all the other peoples of the world and care about them and have you know specific vision for how they live out their relationship with God. I, I, don't, I don't think he's making a, a supremacist argument here. So, so notice the sort of, there's two, two pieces here, right? Awareness of God's interest in man. We've, we've encountered this before over the last couple of weeks, right? That for Heschel, the Bible is first and foremost evidence of God caring about us, which is such an interesting spin, Right, on the bible and i mean it's 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 a belief that certainly emerges from a certain certain kind of religiosity a certain kind of theology which you know which un- understands the bible as the product of divine revelation right but it it for heschel what's so moving and powerful about the bible is that it shows us one interaction between god and humanity after the next right that god is interested in what we're doing with our lives. God cares when we make good choices and God cares when we make bad choices, right? The relationship between God and the Jewish people in the Bible is, is one proof after the next of God's inexhaustible concern for us. So much so that God keeps taking us back, right? Even after we mess up again and again and again. Right. So it's the awareness of God's interest, but also the awareness of a covenant, right, of mutual responsibility. God has responsibilities and we have responsibilities. And because of the mutuality, because of the two partners involved in this covenant, God can't do it all by God's self. God can't fulfill our terms of the covenant. That's for us to do. Right. And that creates a relationship of co-creation, as Wendy was speaking about. That creates a relationship of mutual need. All right, so let's look a little bit more at what that relationship entails. Share screen. Um, Here we go. Life is a partnership of God and man. God is not detached from or indifferent to our joys and griefs. Authentic vital needs of man's body and soul are a divine concern. This is why human life is holy. This is so that, you know, that's what we've been talking about so far. right? God is not indifferent. God is not attached. Um, God is supremely concerned with our needs. God is a partner and a partisan in man's struggle for justice, peace, and holiness, and it is because of God, God's being in need of man that he entered a covenant with him for all time, a mutual bond embracing God and man, a relationship to which God, not only man, is committed. And for those of you who have been wanting more proof texts for Heschel, here's one. That this day you have avowed the Lord to be your God, promising to walk in His ways, to obey His rules and commandments, and to hearken to His voice. And this day the Lord has avowed you to be His very own people, as He has promised you, and to obey His commandments. I think for Heschel, this this text from Deuteronomy is um, is is uh, evidence of the mutuality of the covenant. Let's go on. Some people think that religion comes about as a perception of an answer to a prayer, while in truth it comes about in our knowing that God shares our prayer. Lovely line. The essence of Judaism is the awareness of the reciprocity of God and man, of man's togetherness with him who abides in eternal otherness. For the task of living is his and ours, and so is the responsibility. We have rights, not only obligations. Our ultimate commitment is our ultimate privilege. His need is a self-imposed concern. God is now in need of man because he freely made him a partner in his enterprise, a partner in the work of creation. Um, here, I, I think Heschel is imagining, he's imagining a voice of critique, right, that um, has come up a little bit in our class, like, wait a second, sounds like God has a whole lot of needs, right, sounds like God has, uh, has ha, isn't quite as, you know, transitive in God's concern as we would have imagined, right, um, or, or or maybe this is a knock on God, but here he wants to fire back and say, this is self-imposed, right? God made a choice to need humans. And, and God made a choice to create humans the way we are, limiting God's own power, which then created the need. From the first day of creation, The Holy One, blessed be he, longed to enter into partnership with the terrestrial world to dwell with his creatures within the terrestrial world. That's from the Midrash. Expounding the verse in Genesis 17.1, the Midrash remarked, in the view of Rabbi Jonathan, we need God's honor. In the view of Rabbi Shimon ben Lakish, he needs our honor. When a bunch, we have a bunch of proof texts here. When Israel performs the will of the omnipresent, they add strength to the heavenly power. When, however, Israel does not perform the will of the omnipresent, they weaken, if it's possible to say, the great power of him who is above. Man's relationship to God is not one of passive reliance upon his omnipotence, but one of active assistance. The impious rely on their gods. The righteous are the support of God. And I'll just read one more. The extreme boldness of this paradox was expressed in the Tanaitic interpretation of Isaiah. You are my witnesses, said the Lord, and I am God. And then the Midrash says, when you are my witnesses, I am God, and when you are not my witnesses, I am not God. How is that for a vulnerable expression of God? God's own identity as God is dependent is too strong of a word, but as close as you can get to that word, is almost dependent of our being witnesses and partners to the work of this God. Jen, it's good to see you. Hope you're feeling better.
8: I have a voice now, so that's really nice. <laughs> um, I I'm really struck by I guess the sort of dialectical move here, where we're going from what we generally read in in um, the Bible as like an obsession with separating categories. This is holy. This is not holy. Like there's there's so much of that. And this move. Of- More than
1: that, you know, you're you're up to You're making me look bad. And so I said,
8: okay. <laughs> um, and this sort of it almost feels like not collapsing of categories, but making categories much more complex in the way that they interact with each other than just opposites, right? Um, Mm -hmm. They're codependent on one one another for existence. And I'm wondering if that also extends to all of these other categories or some of these other categories that we see in Torah of like sacred and profane, Um, right? these other categories that that are about like dividing the clean from the unclean, um, all of that kind of thing. Is he making a broader philosophical? He would hate philosophical conceptual, um, like change in the way we think of opposing things, or is this very specific to this one issue of God and man for him? Uh,
1: can I ask you a question in, in response? Do you, so do you see, do you see Heschel's framing of relationship, covenantal relationship between God and man as a collapsing of the distinction?
8: Well, at least a dialectical move, right? Not a collapsing mm-hmm. of distinction so much as saying that the distinction is important, but only in the sense that it interacts in a um uh in a profound way like and we see that god is dependent on man and man is dependent on god so mm-hmm. you know as opposed to we need to separate the sacred and profane mm. it's we need to dwell within and act upon the interaction between the sacred and profane uh, which is a big difference than what you see in a lot of torah where it is about like keeping the clean from the unclean um keeping these things separate
9: mm.
8: he's talking about Actually, seeing them as mutually dependent and acting upon that mutual dependence.
1: Yeah, it's a great question, um, and and I'll answer it to the degree that I think I understand the question and I understand what Heschel's saying about this. I I don't think he's willing to collapse the differences elsewhere. I actually think he he might say that um, it's you know through the partnership of God and man that we can maintain the differences that are are surfaced elsewhere i I mean he's still willing to say right remember from last classes he's not a panentheist right god isn't in everything but everything alludes to god so the profane still alludes to god but it isn't just you know it isn't um as important as the holy right it it isn't as uh important to 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 attach oneself to as the holy so i think that there there still is the world of distinction and uh being partners with god uh helps us know what those meaningful distinctions are and how to maintain them i think uh hannah
9: I want to go back. I'm partly speaking because I want to see if I understand the way I'm translating it for my, in my, how it comes to me. Um, something that was before, a few pages ago, there was a line about, um, and I, I didn't mark it on the screen, um, about one of our tasks is also to learn to feel or distinguish a certain uh, the the necessity or the call to be in relationship to learn to to learn that it might help to hear the exact line that's what's what i i've been listening through this whole time as one of i think of it as one of our tasks one of my tasks is the tracking of our nature, our desire nature, the experience of longing and and, um, maturing through what our initial state of of longing and desire that we come into, um, you know, in the kind of ego state to the understanding that the longing or desire nature the deepest aspect of that is for that the divine relationship awareness does that make sense
1: i, I think that's exactly right and 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 then the divine oh, i love that i love that phrase the divine awareness relationship right then um Feeds back or 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 influences what our yearnings ought to be. Okay, let me let me try to make that point in the text, um, and then we'll we'll wrap up with whatever remaining questions and comments. Okay, I'm on I'm on the last page of the photocopy that I sent you. It's natural and common to care for personal and national goals. But is it as natural and common to care for other people's needs or to be concerned with universal ends? The rhetorical answer is no. Conventional needs like pleasure are easily assimilated by social osmosis. Spiritual needs have to be implanted, cherished and cultivated by the vision of their ends. We don't have to rise above ourselves in order to dream of being strong, brave, rich, or being rulers of an empire or a kingdom of soldiers, but we have to be inspired in order to dream God's dream. You shall be holy, for I, your God, am holy. You shall be unto me a kingdom of priests, a holy people. It is God who teaches us our ultimate ends. Abraham may not have felt the need for abandoning home and country, nor were the people of Israel eager to give up the flesh pots of Egypt for the prospect of going into the wilderness. Analyzing man's potentialities, it becomes evident that his uniqueness and essential meaning lie in his ability to satisfy ends that go beyond his ego. While his natural concern is, what may others do for my ego, Religion teaches him to ponder about what he may do for others and to realize that no man's ego is worthy of being the ultimate end. We have to be inspired in order to dream God's dream. That's what Heschel wants from our relationship with God. Right? that we understand to the degree possible what the world looks like through God's eyes, we adopt that worldview, and then we do our end of the bargain, our side of the covenant, to help bring that dream into fruition. And God cannot bring that dream into fruition without our passionate and righteous activity in that mission. That's a self-imposed need, right? God sets up the world dependent on humans to follow God's ways. And there's a big mystery in that, right? In that choice of creation, but the message of the Bible seems to be God made that choice because God cares about us and God wants us to live a certain way and God summons us to live that way. But as Heschel wrote, we skipped this paragraph, but I'll read it out loud and then we'll wrap up. There is an eternal cry in the world. God is beseeching man. Some are startled, others remain deaf. We are all looked for. An air of expectancy hovers over life. Something is asked of man, of all men. Okay, we've reached one o'clock, so I will sort of officially close, but I'm happy to stay on for another five or 10 for questions and processing and reactions. Oh, and I think next class, according to the calendar, is our final. Hi, it's Rabbi Brass again. Thank you so um, much for listening. Want more content like this? I hope you'll subscribe. And
0: please consider making a contribution to IKAR so we can continue Uh, to work toward the fulfillment of our mission to reanimate Jewish life, to embody moral courage, to nurture the spirit, period. and to but work it. to not, decipher okay, what it so means so to be I a human being in the, the world today. Visit to our, our website so concerned at ikar.org, that's I-K-A-R dot and I hope to see you, maybe not not concern, even in person, sometime soon.
2: That veil, that silence, and yet God's not absent. And I think in dark times like we're living through, dark times like the Holocaust, dark, which none of us really know what the psyche was like internally of human beings who went through it. We have Heschel, we have Victor Frankl, we have inspired people who will tell us, but the strain that it puts on the relationship right now, the wondering, the questioning, um, the feeling like, you know, if there really was a God then, which people say at any moment of great, um, of, of, of great loss, of tremendous loss. I mean, people say that, you know, my aunt said that when her daughter was dying and she was like, had believed in God her entire life until that very moment. And then that disintegrated her her relationship with God. So I guess we're all going through, how are we feeling about the divine and the sacred these days with what we're living through? And I just wonder if you can speak to that
1: yeah yeah by the so, <laughs> so I, I I am um I am moved by an understanding of God that maintains that God shares in our suffering. And I think Jews are sometimes nervous to say what I just said out loud, because it sounds a lot like Christian theology and the function of Jesus, the suffering son of God. But, you know, Jesus had good teachers. And the idea that God suffers when God's people, when humans suffer, is in fact An idea from our scripture, right? It's in Isaiah. In our suffering, God suffers. It's in rabbinic texts, right? The Shekhinah, the feminine aspect of God, if you will. The imminent aspect of God, right? The God who, aspect of God that most presently resides amongst us here on earth is in pain because we're in pain. So Heschel writes about this, by the way, this is, this is, this is not just me speaking. This is Heschel speaking about right, God who suffers. And part of the task of the prophet is not just to, this is sort of like <laughs> graduate level prophecy, right? Is not just to understand how God feels and to translate that concern And that feeling to us humans but graduate level prophecy is to empathize with god to share in god's suffering it's sort of a a cycle here right god suffers because we're suffering and then we suffer because god is suffering and so i i i believe in a god who is not omnipotent i do not believe that god is all-powerful i do not believe that god has the power to swoop in and intervene in human events in any way other than influencing our hearts and consciousness and conscience, right? And so therefore, when God watches us treat each other the way that we do, God is profoundly aggrieved by that. And God suffers when we suffer.
2: Now you know the question I have to ask you. Sorry. I'm
1: ready for it. I'm not, but I'm ready.
2: How do we know that? How do we know that God suffers and and and, and we look to God to make a change that we human beings need to make a change, right? but, how, but like in your what's your what is your proof text in your heart and your mind that says God is just pouring out God's tears right now.
1: Yeah. So first of all, I should say there are incredible actual proof texts and maybe we should learn that at some point together. I mean, there are uh, unbelievable sources in our tradition that I think have been pushed to the sidelines over the years in part because of the strength of my Madian philosophy and the 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 you know the idea of an emotionless god but there's a particular source that's one of my foundational texts um from echa Rabbah, from from a book of midrash specifically on the book of lamentations right which tells the story of the destruction of the first temple which uh, depicts god visiting the ruins of the temple in Jerusalem and wailing and wailing and wailing, unable to be consoled by the angels. And and then God says in the Midrash, um, wake up the patriarchs. They knew how to cry. I need someone to cry with. And then the patriarchs and Moses cry with God, but it doesn't really help. And then in the end, it's Rachel who actually knows how to get through to God. Anyway, so I, I, there's an actual proof text. You use the word proof text. So I'm going to give you a literal answer. But I think you're also asking a, non, a non-textual question, right? Which is, how do you know? How do you know that God weeps and suffers alongside us? Um, and here, I, I just have to thank my teachers, specifically Reb Mimi Feigelson, who... Um, again and again and again over the course of my time in rabbinical school um, held my hand and asked me to close my eyes and to go into the depths of my heart and to do what I think Heschel is asking us to do, which is dream God's dream. And there's always the challenge of being a human being trying to do it, but that's the only vessel we have. Right, and I, and 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 we can't let the doubts of, oh, am I making this up? Is this just my human mind at work? Am I projecting onto the God? Yes, yes, and yes, but there's no other way, and that doesn't negate the truth of what I feel. And so oh, there is a leap, Aviva, right? There's a there's a imaginative leap through the channel of um, empathy and. Uh, recognition of God's being within my being and my being within God's being that once in a while helps me tap into how God feels about me and how God feels about creation around me. Uh, Judy and Karen, thank Thank
2: you. Because I know oftentimes we look for the presence of God in the manner in which we human beings behave to one another but there's this other essence that you've spoken to so i
7: appreciate that Tadaraba.
1: thank you uh judy and then karen and then i and then i will close
7: okay um <clears throat> i understand that the way things are set up the way god put it all in motion <clears throat> god is not omnipotent in the affairs of man i get that but was that a choice is God, was God ultimately omnipotent? And God's choice was in creating man and creating the world, the universe, whatever, to become omnipotent, to not be omnipotent in the affairs of man. I mean, it's not that, in other words, that God couldn't be, couldn't intervene if God wanted to. God has set it up from the get-go with a choice not to. Is that
1: right? I think so. And I think that that, choice stems from the decision that drives the process of creation in the first place to be in relationship and if you're going to be in relationship it's not a real relationship if the one that you're in relationship with is a puppet and you're pulling the strings
7: right but then god made the decision that we are going to suffer god could have made the decision to create everything such that we beings did not suffer
1: that's right that's right a consequence of god's decision and we, we we won't just let god off the hook and use exclusively passive voice right we it's fair to assume that god knew when making the decision that god made about creating us This way and entering into relationship with us this way and limiting God's power in this way, that a result of that would be our suffering. And by the way. That's the point, I think, of the very first story of the Torah of Adam and Eve. We had choice in the garden. And we made a choice. And now this is the life that we live. And there are fabulous midrashim that then essentially say to Adam and Eve, what if you could go back? And they say, no thanks. Because alongside the suffering is an experience of life and beauty and freedom of choice and um, the ability to consciously freely choose to be in relationship with God and with others that makes the whole thing worth it.
7: Yeah, but that supposes that if we were free of suffering because God created a world in which there'd be no suffering, that there wouldn't also be beauty and joy and...
1: Right, right. So, right, that's right. So yes, in this construct, um, suffering is the consequence of free choice I think it's also the consequence of um, our finitude, right? Of uh, uh, our being created of organic matter, um, and it's an interesting question, right? What what beauty? what what experience could 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 be could have been possible in the absence of free choice that's an interesting question
7: the beauty of nature right but we're subject to the laws of nature too yeah but god created the nature that we live in
1: right right but, but if we didn't have, if we didn't have free will and right. how we interpret the beauty of nature would, would be the product of whatever thought or feeling God implanted in us.
7: Well, that would be a very different world.
1: Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. Okay. Agree. Agree. Okay. okay. Karen. Great question, Judy.
4: Um, the question I have goes back to the first paragraph that we read on page 140. And I'll just. Quickly read that that sentence. Um, God is in need of man for the attainment of God's ends, and religion, as Jewish tradition un- understands it, is a way of serving these needs, which we are in, of which we are in need, even though we may not be aware of them. Ends which we must learn to feel the need of. How does? Heschel in in Heschel's interpretation of God proposed that we learn that um yeah and 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 that that we become aware of them and and how how do we know that how do we learn that
1: yeah yeah great question I I, and so I think in some ways that that's the journey that I've been trying to take us on over the course of the class right so the awareness of God for Heschel it begins with wonder It ripens into awe. Once we have a sense of the existence of the divine in the world, then we have to learn how to listen to the divine, right? Which happens through these quiet internal moments in which we um, discern right from wrong. We discern what God's calling for us is. It also happens in collective moments of revelation of God's will for Heschel, as recorded in the Bible, right? The Bible is an essential record for Heschel of um, what God's dream is, how God wants us to manifest that dream. Um, and and then it's a matter of um acting on it from a place of covenant and relationship with God. And um and it's, I mean, I described it right there as a sort of sequential process, but it's uh it's not, right? It's a it's a never-ending cycle, right? And and sometimes you hop from one to the next and the other to the next. But th- those are the those are the entry points for Heschel into um the kind of practice of religion that he's writing about in that paragraph. And by the way, in that paragraph, he does like one of these a little bit, right? Like we have to. To, to understand God's ends, which might not be our ends. And then we have to learn how to make them our ends. I think what he's saying there is what we read in that last paragraph, right? It's natural for us to think about personal or national goals, aspirations. It's less natural for us to adopt the dreams for ourselves that are the dreams about the, the well-being and welfare of others. I mean, you all are great at that. This community is great at that, but we struggle with it as as humans. And and so um, we we need to tap into what God wants from us, this is Heschel's claim, in order to reprioritize those wants in our day-to-day life. Okay, the 75-minute edition. Thank you all for sticking sticking it through and for your attention and for your questions. Um, it's been a delight. I will see you all next Tuesday, if not sooner. Thank,
7: thank you, Rabbi.
1: Thank Later.
3: you, everyone. Thank, thank, Thanks, you so Rabbi. Much, Rabbi. thank you so much, Rabbi.